Father, we thank you tonight for the opportunity that you've given to us to gather and to read the Bible, to pray, to worship. We realize that there are countries around the world where this is not possible. And we realize that to whom much is given, much shall be required. And so, Lord, we're excited to find out just how you will use the lessons that you impart to us through the weeks, the months, and the years, for we are responsible to share them. Lord, I pray that we would not fall prey to the same trap that Israel did with complaining against you, as we have seen so poignantly over and over again in these chapters. Open up our hearts, Father, our minds that we might comprehend. And Lord, I pray that we would decide to love you with all of our hearts, all of our minds, our soul, our strength, all that is within us, Lord, that you would not be a spoke on our wheel of life, but that you would be the very hub, the center, and that everything we do would revolve around you and your directives, that we would be obedient children. Teach us now, Lord, by your Spirit to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. How many love camping here? Raise your hand. How, many, how long have you camped? What's the longest? How many have camped over a week? Raise your hand. Straight, without a straight. You've been out in a tent for a week, not a mobile home with a television and a jacuzzi. You've been in a tent for a week, straight. How many of you have done it for two weeks straight? Raise your hand. Wow. How many have done it for a month straight? Seriously, you've done it that long? In a tent? Really? How many of you have done it for two months straight? You know, some of you guys are strange. <laughs> Have you done a, how, three months? Oh, come on. Seriously? Oh, he puts his hand down. Three months, four months. Five, ushers, mark these people. <laughs> well, I haven't gone that long. I've made it for uh, a few weeks, couple weeks. And uh, I'll tell you what, it's fun. But it gets old, and it gets old quick. I love the great outdoors, but you know, when you start smelling the way you smell, and you know, I just, it's not that. I, I also, I have dreams of shakes and certain treats that you can only get in the civilized world. Prepared foods. I love food out in the great outdoors, but there are certain things you miss. Well, imagine how many of you have done it 40 years straight? Raise your hand. Okay, see? They've got you beat right here. The children of Israel have been at it for 40 years, and the journey is getting to them. They're so excited. Even though their forefathers had died, many of their contemporaries had died, Yet they're on the brink of the promised land. The, the easiest route is north for the children of Israel. To go right up from Kadesh to that fertile country of Hebron where all those grapes were growing, where the 12 spies had brought back the luscious fruit of the land. That's the easiest way. Skirting the land of Moab as they would, they sent a letter to the king and they asked him, or excuse me, Edom and Moab, if they could go up. And the king said, fine, you come up this way and you're dead. 
And so now they're getting discouraged, as we saw last week in verse 4. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. I imagine it was tough raising your children out in the wilderness for 40 years. I imagine it was tough dating out in the wilderness. Well, what do you do? What do you go see? You don't go see a movie. You go lizard hunting, perhaps. <laughs> a romantic date of lizard watching and lizard hunting. Now they're about to go in. They can't even go in the way they thought they could. Now they're just defeated, discouraged. They go back down and around toward the Red Sea where all the sandstorms are. I have flown into Egypt. And one time when I was flying in, of course, I've seen that in places like here in Las Vegas, but coming into Egypt, you see this brown haze because of the windstorms at certain times of the year, the dust storms where you can't see anything and you walk outside and you're just pelted by sand. And to not have protection from those elements, thinking, man, we're finally going to make it into that land of Hebron and Eshkol where those grapes grow, a land of milk and honey. No, having to go back toward the Red Sea into the same wilderness would make them very discouraged. And as we see here, they were very discouraged. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. It was sort of like if you were in Santa Fe and you want to come to Albuquerque. And you, they say, well, fine, you can come, but you can't go straight. You have to go all the way to Flagstaff, down to Phoenix, and then up and over that way on foot. <laughs> Hope deferred would make the heart sick. What is interesting to me also is that this defeat or this discouragement because of the way came after victory. They had won a mighty victory. God gave them victory over part of their enemies in the Transjordan. And yet after a tremendous victory comes tremendous discouragement. Now, it could be, as many people would, relegate it to the work of the enemy. It could be the enemy trying to discourage them. Or it could be simply a test to strengthen them. It's funny how whenever something bad goes wrong, we always say, well, you know, pray for me. The devil. Not necessarily. Perhaps the Lord. Oftentimes, the Lord puts you in a pressure cooker. He turns the heat up. Why would God do that so that I'd fry? No, so that you would, like, it's like you bake clay. You know, heat can melt wax, but it can also harden clay into something very useful. And God will sometimes allow us to be tested. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and chapter 8, God said, I tested you for 40 years that I might see what is in your heart. It's amazing what comes to the surface when we're tested, when God turns up the furnace. God turned up the furnace in Job's life. Caused him great suffering. Caused his wife great suffering. And as the heat was raised, man, could you see their hearts. Maybe it was that Job's wife was a spiritual person up to a point. She went to church. She said she believed in God. Then they lost their children. They lost their home. Her husband has this loathsome disease. And she changes her tune. She comes to her husband and says, Look, 
curse God and die. That was her attitude. That's what came to the surface. Just curse God and get it over with. He said to her, you're a foolish woman. Should we only accept good from God and not evil? That was his philosophy. He said, God is sovereign and I will take good from God and I will take adversity from God. And boy, did he take it. Not always successfully, but he got molded and bettered in the end, didn't he? It is estimated that if you took a bar of steel worth $5, melted it, fashioned it, made it into horseshoes, it would now be worth $10. Yet if you took that $5 bar of steel and made it into sewing needles, rather than being worth $5, it's now worth $350. Take that same $5 bar of steel and make blades for scalpels for a surgeon's operations, and that bar of steel will be worth $32,000. Shape it, beat it, put it through the fire some more, and make tiny little springs for watches, for pens. It's now worth $250,000. Every time it is passed through the fire and it is beaten and shaped, it's more valuable. Now, if that $5 bar of steel could talk, what would it say? Stop! Ouch! Why would you do this if you love me so much? God will shape our lives through pain and adversity. That is why those who teach this damnable doctrine that God never wants suffering to come to his children are incredibly shallow. Incredibly shallow. You'd have to rip out entire sections of the Bible to come up with that goofy theology. Sometimes God will turn up on purpose the heat that you might have your roots go down deeper and be a man or a woman of character. Have you noticed people, Christians, who have suffered greatly and still cling to God seem to have a depth of character that you can't get anywhere else? It goes deeper than just praise the Lord, hallelujah, bless God, thank you, Jesus. It's a real depth of clinging unto God through difficult circumstances. Beautiful to watch. I'm humbled when I'm in the midst of those who have suffered greatly, especially for the sake and in the work of God. Well, down in verse 16, well, actually, beginning in verse 10, there's a road map of travels, and we're not going to read their road map, and if you'd like to take a map and hit all the cities and go for it, get stoked on it. But they begin at Oboth, wherever that is out there, and they uh, continue their... Uh, roadmap travels. But down in verse 16, from there they went to Beer, or Be'er. Uh, it would be the better translation. <laughs> or pronunciation. It's not like a brewery or anything out there. It's just an ancient Hebrew word, Be'er. Where the well of the Lord... Uh, where the, which is the well, where the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Then Israel sang... This song, oh, I love this. They're not complaining, they're singing. You might want to underline that. Israel sang this song, Spring up, O well. All of you sing to it. The well the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. And from the wilderness they went to Matanah. Now did you hear this? What a difference. They're singing to the Lord instead of complaining. They've sort of gone from singing the funeral dirge to the hallelujah chorus. 
Now, why is that? Well, it's because now, for the first time in 40 years, they are aware of God's provision. And aware of God's provision, they start rejoicing. Spring up, oh well, let's all gather around. And they sing this huge chorus out in the wilderness. Now, they would have come here regardless, whether they complained or rejoiced. God would have brought them here eventually. Part of God's plan when he takes us on the way and there's difficulties on the way and we get discouraged on the way, is to not leave us in that place of discouragement. But God plants periodic springs of refreshment in our lives. Now sometimes, and perhaps even tonight, some of you are going through what you might say is a wilderness experience, a dry spell, and a time of great suffering and a time of great trials. Know this, it won't last forever. Oh, but it's been so long. The children of Israel were discouraged because of the way. And God will send and bring you at his sovereign time to a place of refreshment. That you might say, spring up. Because God knows what you can take and what you can't take. God is not going to lay on something that you are unable to handle. That he might watch you just, you know, get crushed. Oh, look at that. Oh, this is fun. Watch them. Look at their wincing. Now, God will refresh you in the midst of the suffering. So where are you tonight? Are you at a place of victory? Then I rejoice with you. You might be at a place where, you, man, you're just, every song is just filled with emotion when you sing it. God has been so good to you. I rejoice with you. But don't be surprised. Don't abandon ship if God moves you from that mountaintop experience down into the valley down to the desert, out into the sandstorm, by the way of the Red Sea. Don't be surprised if he tests you for a period of time. Maybe you're not at a place of victory tonight. Maybe you're a place described in verse 4 where your heart is weighed down. You're discouraged because of the way. I've got good news for you (laughs) and bad news. Number one, you're in a very dangerous spot. You say, how do you say a dangerous spot? Well, you have a choice to make. You can either cling harder to the Lord or you can complain and gripe like the children of Israel. And it's possible that you could die in your bitterness. There's many Christians who go all the way through life bitter all the time. They just die bitter old people. The good news is that God will not always keep you at that place of discouragement. Out in the desert, he'll bring you to a well of refreshment. The trouble is, When you're used to complaining many times, you don't see the well of refreshment. Yeah, great, yeah, great. But but my life's bad. Yeah, but there's refreshment. Yeah, I know, but I've got to tell you about all my trials. Fortunately, they saw it. If tonight you are at that complaining stage, you have one recourse only. Repent. If you are starting already to level your complaints against God for the lot in your life, the only recourse you have is to say, God, I humble myself, I repent, lest you die in bitterness, as many of the children of Israel did in the wilderness. Now, down in verse 21 to the end is the story of the defeat of two kings, which we'll just pass over briefly. They have sort of strange names. One is named Sihon, the other is named Og. Sihon and Og. Sihon is the king of the Amorites. He's about to be pushed out of his land. 
Og is the king of Bashan, or Bashan, the heights of Gilead, east of the Sea of Galilee. They're notable victories for the children of Israel. Now, I want to just kind of tie in a scripture uh, for you. Sihon is the king of the Amorites. God made a promise about the Amorites back in Genesis. Do you remember? He spoke to Abraham, and he said, Abraham, let's make a covenant together. And they sealed the covenant over the cutting of an animal, the sacrifice of an animal. Then God said, Abraham, your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not their own for 400 years, meaning Egypt. But he said, after the fourth generation, I'm going to bring them back here to this land that you are in, which is the land of Canaan. And then he said an interesting statement. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. I'm going to bring them back to this land, which is the land of the Amorites. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What, that's, by the way, Genesis 15. What that shows me is God is incredibly patient. He had his eye on the Amorites. He didn't let Abraham come in immediately and occupy the land with all of his descendants, uh, though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were there, and they were there as a tribal group. But the children of Israel grew as a nation outside of Israel in Egypt for 400 years, and God was letting the iniquity of the Amorites in that land go higher and higher and higher before God would act. God is patient with nations. God will let them go their way. God will send them revelation. God will send them missionaries. But there does come a point when God says, I have now had enough. Your iniquity has reached this mark that I have set predeterminately. And now I will judge. That principle is found also in the book of Genesis with the flood. God said, my spirit will not always strive with man. God said, I'll strive with a, a lot. Listen, God is long-suffering. God will let you get, get away with a lot of stuff. And God will let nations get away with a lot of stuff. But there comes a point when God intervenes. And God is now about to punish the Amorites. After hundreds of years, they're now displaced. So, verse 25, Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all of the cities of the Amorites in Heshbon and all of its villages. The land of the Amorites is from two notable rivers, if you have an atlas, the Arnon River and the Jabbok River. These are rivers that flow into, they flow uh, from east to west. The Arnon River is about midway to the Dead Sea. The Jabbok Brook, or the Jabbok River, is, oh, about 24, 25 miles north of the Dead Sea, and it flows into the Jordan River. And that whole area to the Dead Sea, the Jordan River, and east is the kingdom of the Amorites. Heshbon, which is today just an archaeological dig, a hill that they're working on, was the principal city. And then uh, Og of Bashan is mentioned as well, out by the Sea of Galilee. Verse 26, Heshbon was the city of Sihon, or Sihon, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken away all of his land from his hand as far as the Arnon, Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sihon be repaired. For fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon. It consumed Ar of Moab, the lords of the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, Moab, you have perished, O people of Chemosh. 
He has given his sons as fugitives, his daughters into captivity to Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Now Chemosh is mentioned. He is a pagan god, the god of the Amorites. He was thought to be the god of war. Isn't that interesting? He lost. If he's the god of war, he didn't do a good job in letting them win the battle. They lost the battle to the children of Israel. Once again, God was showing my God is better than, or that he is better than all their gods. Chemosh was identified with Baal of Peor. You might want to just mention that or keep that in your mind. Baal of Peor Peor was the god worshipped by Balaam, who is introduced in the next chapter. Balaam is summoned by the king of Moab, Balak. He's also equated with Mars. Some saw him as Saturn, but they saw him as a heavenly body, and if he ever appeared, it was a bad omen. He was a pagan god that was worshipped. By the way, Solomon, it says in 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, built high places. Excuse me, 1 Kings 11, I think. High places to Chemosh. He called it the, or it was called the abomination of Chemosh. He built the high places to worship pagan gods. Later on, King Josiah breaks down all the altars that were built to this king. Now look at verse 30. We have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon. That is a town in Moab where the principal uh, temple to Chemosh was built. There we laid waste as far as Nophah, which reaches to Mediba. All these strange names. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Moses sent to spy out Jazer. They took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. And they turned and went up by the way to Bashan or Bashan. However you want to pronounce it, I think, is okay with God. So Og, the king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all of his people, to battle at Endri. As soon as Og, up north, heard that the children of Israel had defeated the southern kingdom, he gets a little bit nervous. But eventually he gets pushed out, so what happens is the children of Israel now occupy all the way from the area of the Dead Sea, all the way up past the Sea of Galilee toward the Golan Heights, east of the Jordan River. This is their first victory. This is the first settlement of the land. And Moses allows two and a half tribes to settle there. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh settle east of the Jordan River. The rest will cross the Jordan River and drive out the nations in the land of Canaan. Verse 34, Then the Lord said to Moses, Do not fear him, and listen to the way God puts it. For I have, past tense, delivered him into your hand with all of his people and his land. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites who dwelt at Heshbon. So they defeated him, his sons, and all of his people until there, were, there was no survivor left him. And they took possession of his land. Now what's interesting is that God promised them victory before they even entered the battle. I have delivered them. Now that doesn't mean they sit back and just whistle Dixie, they have to go into battle. But God promised them victory before they went into battle. I think that's a lesson for us. We are Christians engaged in spiritual warfare. We have a very formidable enemy. Do not underestimate the devil, especially since he knows you better than you think. Think of it. He has watched 
He has intricately observed, he has studied human nature for over 6,000 years. He's tempted the best. He has made many of them fall. He knows what makes you tick. He studied you. He knows your weaknesses. Don't underestimate him. However, you have an incredible commanding officer who happens to live inside of you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So rather than going, the devil, the devil's going to get me. Hey, Jesus Christ lives in you. Your commanding officer. You do not fight for victory. You fight from victory. From the position of being victorious is where you do battle. Now, in one sense, ultimately, Satan is already defeated at the cross. The death, burial, and resurrection sealed his demise. Now, there's a lot of skirmishes along the way. He tries to tempt you. He tries to weaken you, weaken your testimony, weaken your effectiveness. But if you realize that you fight from victory rather than for victory, then you can march right in. For the Lord has said, I have delivered the enemy into your hands. I love that scripture in Colossians chapter 2, which says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now let's move on to chapter 22. And tonight we're going to make it, hopefully, through this entire chapter. But this is part of a section. Chapters 22 to 25 is a section about one of the most enigmatic people in all of the Bible, and that is Balaam. He's just a weird guy. I haven't quite pegged him. Chapter 22, we're introduced to him, and it's a very tragic but a humorous story. Now, Balaam is important. More is written about Balaam than Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the Bible, just to put it into perspective. More is written about Balaam than all of the apostles put together. He's an important character. He has beautiful prophecies in chapter 23 where he says, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Judah. Probably a reference to the Messiah. Yet, Balaam is always used as a negative example in the Bible. As a false prophet and as a greedy person. I found that the Bible has lots of odd, strange characters. Cain, weird guy. Out there, you know, he gets ticked off at his sacrifice, not except he kills his brother. Strange kind of a person. The rich young ruler is one of those people in the New Testament that I quite haven't figured out. You know, he comes to Jesus and he says, I've done this from my youth up. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and come and follow me. He's testing him. Is it riches you want to follow or is it the ultimate riches, the kingdom of heaven? It says that guy walked away sorrowful. And there's no reference that he ever came back nor that Jesus ever ran after him and said, wait, 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 consider. He just walks off the pages of scripture. Esau is one of those strange people. Absalom. Judas, what an odd person. Imagine being with Jesus three years and hearing what he heard, seeing what he saw, only to betray Jesus and in the end hang himself. William Gurnall wrote these words 
None sink so far into hell as those who have come nearest heaven because they fall from the greatest height. Balaam is one of the ultimate hypocrites of Scripture. He is mentioned prominently in the book of Jude, in the book of 2 Peter, in the book of Revelation. Peter mentions it, calling it the way of Balaam. Jude mentions the error of Balaam. And the book of Revelation talks about the doctrine of Balaam. All three of them are not good. In Jude chapter 1, verse 11, Woe to them! They have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Balaam represents a covetous person who will do anything for money. He will go to any extent. He also represents the kind of person who will encourage others to sin or cause a stumbling block. As later on we're going to see, he gives bad counsel to Balak to cause the children of Israel to stumble. So he represents a person who will give evil counsel so that others would sin. He's turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. The Corinthians did this. They rationalized their behavior to the extent that they turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. And uh, the theologians have a term for this. It's called antinomianism. And it describes a group of people who call themselves Christians, and they say, we're Christians, we're under grace, and we can live any way we please. And so they will go out and frequently sin against God and encourage others to do it and just tell people, oh, it doesn't matter how you live, you're under God's grace. That's turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. And Paul warned about it. John Calvin said, We are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. Okay, having said that about Balaam, let's get into it. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the children of Israel moved and encamped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel, what they had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Here this guy saw the incredible number, the sheer number looking down over the plains of the children of Israel. They covered the land and his heart sunk. He heard what the children of Israel had done to Sihon and Og. And he thought, I'm next, I'm history. Now, Sihon, previously in history, had dispossessed Balak and his people from the portion of land that they inhabited. And perhaps he's thinking, I've got to get rid of the Israelites so that I can have the land back that I once used to own. Verse 4, so Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us like an ox licks up the grass in the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at the time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river. And every time you have the term the river, it is the Euphrates River, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. 
Now, I've got to hand it to Balak. He understood something about the children of Israel that other leaders had not understood. And that is the children of Israel were a spiritual people. They had a law that governed them that they said came from their God. They centered their life around the worship of the tabernacle. And so rather than fighting them with physical means, he thought, if they're a spiritual people, I need to fight them with spiritual means. So rather than coming out against them with just a huge army, seeing that they have a God on their side that is stronger than the other gods, he seeks to get a very well-known seer, diviner, prophet named Balaam of Peor. Yeah, the son of Beor at Pethor. And verse 5, Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river. I already read that. Verse 5, the land of the sons of his people. Now, if you're trying to find that on a map because you're one of those incredibly diligent students, it's a city that is modern-day Pitru, near the Euphrates River. Around, it's in Iraq. It's the land I was just at at Christmas. It is close to the city of Karshemish, which is an important Old Testament city. It's where Pharaoh was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, which allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take over the land later on, all of the known world at the time. It's also close to the ancient city of Haran in ancient Assyria where the patriarchs lived. That's where this guy is hanging out. Now it says that he's a prophet or a seer, and uh, it seems that he was... A diviner. That is, let me tell you how it worked. He was not a godly man. He was a false prophet. He was an Akkadian priest, which meant he read the entrails of animals, especially livers. They would take livers, they'd watch it jiggle, they'd cut it up, and they would foretell the future based on looking at the entrails of animals. Or they would put drops of oil in water and it'd form a pattern. And they'd say, and I see here in your future. And uh, the way the stars were, or they'd watch the way birds would fly in a formation or animals would graze together. And he would come up with these odd prophecies. I think he would have fit very well in Santa Fe or Taos, <laughs> one of these odd kind of places. He said, yeah, man, wow, you're awesome. And so Bala calls for this seer from Mesopotamia. Verse 7, so the elders of Moab, the elders of Midian, departed with a diviner's fee. Now, this is where it comes in, the temptation to money. A diviner's fee in their hand, they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to them, stay the night, lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt and covered the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. The ancient peoples believed in the power of the spoken word. And they used to say, and this was not a biblically-based thing, necessarily. Once a word is let out, its power is released, and it's all over. And so, whoever you curse, hey, you know, they're cursed. And, and the, if, if you're a, a special person, a prophet or a diviner, if you let out a curse, it can't be reversed. What you speak will come to pass. 
We'll speak a little bit about that more next week as he attempts to curse the people of God and he is unable to and he has to bless the people of God. Um, Verse 12, God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Now mark that. God says they're blessed, you can't curse them. I wish more people would learn that about Israel. You know that God has made a covenant with the land of Israel? I know that many people, even in the church today, will say that, well, all of those promises God made to Israel are null and void because Israel disobeyed, crucified the Messiah, and now all the promises in the Old Testament uh, belong to the church. That's baloney. May 14, 1948, should have settled a lot of those questions. God said, I will gather my people back into the land from which they were cast out. Well, if God meant that in a spiritual sense, and we're supposed to apply that to our lives, we have a problem because it literally happened. No, they're not gathered there in faith and in belief, but that day is coming. But God made a covenant that they're there. And every nation who has sought to bless Israel has been blessed. Every nation who has sought to curse Israel has been cursed. That's why I pray for our nation when they start making these... um, Decisions about our relationship to Israel. God said to Abraham, whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. In other words, when you mess with Israel, you're getting very personal. Just like if somebody touches my eyelid, I'm going to protect it. I'm going to protect my people. Whoever blesses you or curses you, God says, will determine their own fate. Look at the great nations that touched Israel. Babylon once ruled the world. Where is she? She's just words in a history book. Egypt once ruled the earth. Now just part of a league of Arab nations. Germany touched Israel in World War II. Once a world power. Even England, who once ruled the seas, ruled the world. And so we have to be careful with our position. I'm not saying Israel's perfect. I think they make a lot of mistakes. I disagree with a lot of their policies. And I could go on about that, but it wouldn't serve our purpose. You shall go with with them, but you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose up in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Balak, go back to your land. The Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Sounds so far so good. And the princes of Moab rose went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes. Now you see, Balaam in the past is used to reading livers, spleens, kidneys. Now God has really appeared to him, spoken to him. So he doesn't have to go read a liver. He's had an apparition. He's had the voice from God. It's enough for him. No, I'm not going to go. However, it's going to change. Balak Again, verse 15, sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. They came to Balaam and said, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly. And I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come and curse this people for me. Now, the thought is that if you curse them, it will weaken the people and we can take them over. Lest you bless them, I want you to curse them. Now, comes the temptation here for greed. Hey, write your own ticket. 
Tell me whatever you want. Whatever you want, we'll give to you. Herein lies the downfall of Balaam. Some people fall more easily than others when it comes to greed. We read this morning uh, what that one article said in taking a survey of Americans, what they would do for $10 million. And a large percentage of them said, I would leave my family, I'd leave my husband, I'd put my children up for adoption if the price was right. Balaam's error is that he fell toward greed. And there's a lot of people who will trade the eternal stuff for the temporal stuff. By and large, the world doesn't care about their soul. They care about, you know, their job, their position, how nice a place and how comfortable they are in life. They don't care about eternal matters. But Jesus said, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? There's the story in the Old Testament of Naaman, who was a leper. Remember, he comes to Israel and Elisha tells him to go dip seven times in the Jordan River. The guy says, ah, that's stupid, but he does it anyway, and he's healed. Now that he's healed, he's so excited. He says, I, I want to give you money. I want to pay you off. I want to give you a reward. Elisha says, I refuse. I refuse to take your money before God, before whom I stand. I will not take anything you offer. And so Naaman starts leaving. Elisha has just refused to take any money. But the problem is Elisha has a servant named Gehazi who's greedy. And he runs after Naaman. And he catches him on the road and says, wait, wait, a minute, wait a minute. I know we said we wouldn't take anything, but... And he makes up the story. He goes, there's a couple of young prophets. They're in the ministry, and uh, they're going to stay with us for a while. And could you spare a few thousand bucks and a couple changes of clothes for them? And the guy says, oh, absolutely. Here, write the check. Go for it. He's just been cured of leprosy. He's ecstatic about it. And so he gives out of the abundance of his heart. He goes back home... And Elisha said, where have you been? He goes, nowhere. Sounds like our kids sometimes when they're up to no good. Nowhere. He says, I know where you've been. You're greedy. You went after him for money, didn't you? And he says, now the curse of Naaman will be upon you. And Gehazi became a leper. Be careful when people, because they have been blessed, come to greatly enrich you. Now, I think a lot of ministries take advantage of that. After the miracle service, after the preaching service, after a great worship, their heart is emotionally stirred. Now we want you to give and dig deep, you know, but they'll prime the people. And Balaam had a real problem in this area, as we'll see. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, verse 18, Though Balak were to give me a house full of <clears throat> silver and gold. Now, there was no mention of silver and gold, but he said he could have anything he wants, and so he mentions it. I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. He sounds very pious, doesn't he? But it's not true. Why does he mention silver and gold? Because he's thinking about it. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. Now, wait a minute. That's dumb. God already said, no, don't go. But he goes, uh, let me pray about it a little more. Let me check back with God again. You know, maybe he'll change his mind a little bit. You know, silver and gold is involved. 
He's changing his mind. Now, there is a time to pray and there's a time not to pray. There's certain things you don't have to pray about. You know that? Let's say there's a young couple. They're madly in love and they decide, you know, let's live together before marriage. Let's make sure we're compatible with all of the benefits of marriage. We'll, we'll have sex before marriage and we'll keep house before marriage. And, and let's, let's pray if that's what God wants us to do. You don't need to pray about that. That's utterly ridiculous. It is wrong. It is sinful. The Bible says that in so many places. There's a time to pray and there's a time to move. Moses stood at the Red Sea and here the Egyptians are coming on top of him and there's uh, rocks on either side and uh, the Red Sea is right in front of him. And he starts praying. Oh God, because the people are complaining. And, and, and God says, why are you praying now? Now isn't the time to pray. Stretch out your hand over the sea. Get moving. The Egyptians are behind you. But here Balaam prays again the second time. Stay the night. I'm going to see what God has to say. And God, verse 20, came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise, go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. You say, now wait a minute. What's going on here? First God said, don't go. Now he says, go. Now that, that might be a tough one. It might seem like a contradiction. But... The problem lies not in God, but in the prophet who is vacillating. He has made up his mind, no doubt, to go. He's heard of silver and gold. He can write his own ticket. Hey, let me pray about it a little more. Now, God, in his permissive will, will allow him to go as an opportunity to bless, not curse, the children of Israel. And secondly, as an opportunity to show that all of this pagan div divination won't do any good that God will bless whom he's decided to bless, sort of to show up all the other gods. It's now an opportunity, but it's really the permissive rather than the perfect will of God. Verse 21, Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his donkey, went with the princes of Moab. God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back on the road. How many of you remember the sitcom, My Mother the Car? Raise your hand if you're that old. Come on, raise it up. Let's see how old you are. How many of you, more of you, remember Mr. Ed? Remember the talking horse? Wilbur. This is like the Old Testament version of Mr. Ed. This is the talking donkey. In fact, they could have made a great cereal, a series out of this uh, cereal too, out of uh, donkeys, but a great series out of this show, out of uh, this whole story in the Old Testament. God is about to speak through a donkey. The donkey sees what Balaam doesn't see, and Balaam will hear from a donkey. It's a very humorous, but it's a tragic. There's, there's a, a lot of symbolism, I think, involved. It's, a, it's ironic. Now, before we get into this, just a word about being used by God. It's a wonderful thing to be a spokesman for God. It's a wonderful thing to speak the word of the Lord. 
But I think here is a great story to give all of us caution. Lest we set ourselves up on a pedestal and think, I'm a messenger of God. I speak the words of God. Well, that's great. But God even used a donkey to speak through. So don't get too puffed up like you're something really great. Ooh, wow. Because even if God can use a donkey, hey, there's hope for us all. Now, I often get asked the question, will there be animals in heaven? I'm not going to really touch that one. I certainly hope this animal's in heaven, though. I'd like to have a conversation with him. Now, here's an angel of the Lord. His sword is drawn. The donkey sees him, veers off the road. Hey, don't mess with angels of God, especially when they have their sword drawn. Time magazine had an article about angels. In fact, they're very popular of late. And uh, the article outlined the beliefs of Americans, and it said that 69% of Americans believe in the existence of angels, and 46% say they believe they have their own guardian angel. 32% say that they have personally felt that angelic presence in their life. Now, the Bible says a lot about angels. We don't have to mythologize this or just say that, you know, the donkey was sunstruck or something. He really saw an angel. They're mentioned many times in the Bible. 17 books in the Old Testament, 17 books in the New Testament mention angelic beings. The Greek word angelos means a messenger. It usually refers to a specific type of being, though it can refer to you know, an apostle, a pastor, or a missionary, somebody who's sent on a mission. But usually it speaks about angelic beings, these heavenly beings. And they have incredible power. The donkey knew more than Balaam at this point. Here's a couple of scriptures. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 20. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Remember the story in the Old Testament when Shennacherib the Assyrian came against Judah and surrounded the city and Isaiah and uh, Hezekiah prayed to God. And God used an angel to kill 185,000 Assyrians. That's one angel. One angel can do a lot of damage. With that in mind, remember the words of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when Peter whips out a sword and Jesus said, put it away, pal. Don't you know I can get 12 legions of angels? That's 72,000 angels if I want. Now, if one angel can kill 185,000 Assyrians, imagine what 72,000 could do. Lots of damage. Here's one angel standing in front of Balaam, the prophet. Verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Now getting your foot crushed would ruin your day. But better to crush your foot than destroy your life. The angel's trying to veer out of the way has more sense than Balaam. Balaam can't see. Now, what's funny is Balaam is called a seer. Right? He's supposed to know things that nobody else knows. Well, he's ignorant at this point. Verse 26, The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with a staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Here comes Mr. Ed, episode number one. And she said to Balaam, 
What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, this is truly amazing. A donkey is speaking. What's even more amazing is in just a moment, without blinking an eye, this prophet is going to start talking back to him. He's not going to say, no, wait a minute. You can't talk. You're a donkey. He starts answering him at his own level. This great, mighty seer, this great prophet. Now, donkeys were regarded as contrary animals, stubborn, in other words, and dumb. This angel, uh, this donkey is not contrary, gets out of the way because he sees a problem in the road, and is not dumb, but can talk. So God opens its mouth. Uh, verse 29, And Balaam said to the donkey, <laughs> you know, right there, just right there, And Balaam said to the donkey, the donkey says, you know, how come you're beating me? And he says, because you've abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey in which you have ridden? Ever since I became yours to this day, was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, well, no. <laughs> he, he, it doesn't click yet. Now, you could say, well, I don't really believe this is true. Why not? If the devil can cause a serpent in the Garden of Eden to speak, God can cause a donkey to speak. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. He, this is great. He says, I want a sword. I'll, get, find me a sword. I'll kill you. Well, the, the ironic thing is there is a sword in the angel's hand ready to kill the prophet. And the prophet says, let me, let me, where's the sword? Right here. And it says the Lord opened his eyes. You see, he's showing him the futility of his false religion. He couldn't see anything unless God opened his eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and he fell on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out against you to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have also killed you by now and let her live. Balaam is going. He's on his way. First God said, don't go. Now, then God says, okay, you're going to go, but you're only going to say what I say. And they're all blessings, not cursings. So God is going to use this false prophet to bless his people to prove that all of this false divination doesn't work and that God is still in control and the overarching principal power of all the earth. God is going to demonstrate that. But Balaam is going now because his heart is greedy. He wants the money. He wants the payoff. He sees honorable princes and nobles who come and offer him some money. The Bible in 2 Peter calls this the way of Balaam. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. They have forsaken the right way. They have gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. He is in dangerous territory. He's on his way down because of money to act as a prophet, and God is restraining him. God is showing him this angel saying, you know, you speak anything wrong, Bubba, and it's all over. 
But just the fact that he is going at the invitation of those who have offered him great money shows that he's in dangerous territory. Whenever a salesman can get you to test his product, he knows he has his foot in the door. Well, just here. Here's the keys, man. Drive it. Drive this thing around. You know, bring it back in a half an hour. Why do they do that? They do it because, you know, once you get behind the wheel, man, and you sense the power of that thing. Wow, this is great. Oh, it smell, smells new. Oh, I think I can afford the payment. You know, he's got his foot in the door. He'll entice you that way. Hey, let me work you a great deal. I'm kind of known for not liking salesmen. I go into a store and I see them coming, and I probably act rude to them because, you know, it's just like a spiel. Well, hey, how are you today? Hey, great. Listen, hey, have you, can I help you if you want to try this? No, I don't want to. I just want to look. Leave me alone. And, uh, you know, Balaam is, is going with the sales pitch. And they've got him. They've hooked him. What it's beautiful about here is that God is trying to stop him. You see an angel of God with a sword drawn. You say, man, God is pretty vengeful. This is a God of love. God sees our stupid paths many times, and he will try to stop us. He'll send a friend. You'll read a pamphlet. Something will happen. God's trying to get your attention. It's, it's the love of God. I had a good friend of mine. He was a strong Christian. His name was Tony. God was using Tony tremendously. Tony decided to go back and drink his fill back in the world. He thought he hadn't had enough. He started hanging around with the wrong crowd, getting drunk, taking drugs, running around loosely with women. Tony came to my door one night, knocked on it. I'd never seen his face so downcast before. I said, Tony, what's up? He said, man, I feel so beat up. And he showed me his arm. His arm was in a sling, and his radial nerve had been uh, pinched. He couldn't move his hand, and it was basically paralyzed. To a, he couldn't move it. He told me what had happened, and he got in an accident. He just says, Skip, I'm here because I think... God has spared my life, but he's gotten my attention. We had a long talk that evening. He wept in my living room in my apartment in San Bernardino, California. He gave his heart back to Jesus. And that night we prayed, and I watched with my own eyes, God heal his arm. A radial nerve that had been pinched. And I know what that is like. I've seen it, documented. God released it, and he moved his hand completely. And to this day, he's healed. But God got his attention. And he admitted it. It's the love of God. My nerve is pinched. I can't move. And God further demonstrated his love by healing his arm. He didn't have to, but he did. Sovereignly. This donkey. This angel. Love of God. Verse 34. And Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know you stood in the way against me. Therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now, it sounds good. He sounds repentant. He sounds honest at this point. But don't be fooled. In chapter 25, he will come up with a scheme not to curse them directly, but to get them to fall into sin so that God will come against them. He'll come up with a scheme, a plan, so that he can collect this money and he can run with it. He is a hypocrite. 
He'll talk about Yahweh. He'll talk about God and blessed this. And he'll come up with even some great prophecies. But he's living a lie. He's a hypocrite. That's a horrible word, isn't it? Hypocrite. You know, it's original meaning in Greek, hypocrites, means an actor. In the ancient days, the way people would perform a role is they would wear a mask on a stick. And they would hold it up to themselves, whether it's a happy face or a sad face or an evil face. And underneath the mask was their real face. So the actor might have a smiley face on and play the part of a real jovial fellow. Underneath, he could be scowling. The mask is what you see, but it's not really him. That was a hypocrites, an actor, a phony. He's playing a part. It wasn't a bad word originally, but it simply has come to mean somebody who is not, who is acting a role, but he's not really that way on the inside. He's wearing a mask. Now, there's lots of masks that people wear. Some of you may be wearing one tonight. Balaam was wearing a mask. Many people wear the I'm cool mask. In every situation, it's kind of like, well, yeah, man, you know, aloof. I don't need to attach myself to anybody. I don't want to get burned, man. I'm cool. Some people wear the I'm intellectual mask. They deal with life theoretically, and they'll try to say things and use words to make you feel like a ditz, and they're really intellectual, and it's a mask. The worst mask of all is the I am spiritual mask. The Pharisees wore that mask, and Jesus came against them more than any other group of people in the New Testament. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you are corrupt. You are full of dead men's bones and all corruption. And anybody that you win and convert to your religion, you make him a twofold child of hell more than yourselves. Nothing but scathing denunciations for these hypocrites. They were wearing a mask. Balaam was a spiritual hypocrite. And we'll see that in chapters ahead. Let's finish this out quickly. Balak heard that Balaam was coming. He went out to meet him in the city of Moab. I mean, he was so excited to get this guy. He went all the way out to the border to get him, which is the border at the Arnon. That's the river that I told you about, the boundary of the territory. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send you calling for you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? That is, I want to pay you some big bucks. Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. So Balaam went with Balak, and he came to Kiriath Huzot. And Balak offered oxen and sheep, and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. Now, what does that mean? He sent some of the entrails, no doubt, like the liver and the spleen or whatever he was uh, to read. Uh, how do I know that? Well, look at uh, the first verse in chapter 24. There it mentions that up to this point he has been using divination or sorcery. But now suddenly there's a change from, from there on. So now he's in the enemy's camp. And uh, back in uh, verse 41, so it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, that from there he might observe the extent of the people. Now, in the Old Testament, the high places were always the places that were sought after for worship because the ancients believed that the higher you were, the closer you are to God. 
It's sort of like in Europe, they built steeples on churches because it's the highest point. It's supposed to be closer to God and pointing up to heaven. Well, in the Old Testament, the high hills is where they had temples and uh, worship centers. As we close this chapter, a word about God using you. God used a donkey. God spoke through a donkey. And the donkey saw into the supernatural realm. It's pretty awesome for a donkey. It'd be pretty awesome for a person. This is a great example because though God does want to use you, and God, God does want to speak his word through you, when God does use you and God does speak his word through you, don't climb up on a pedestal and say, you know, I'm pretty awesome. God has spoken to me and God has used me. Well, that's great. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us. The weak things to put to shame the things that are mighty. If God uses me or God uses you, chalk it up to God's grace. He's used another foolish thing to get his word across. So when I hear TV evangelists talk about this ministry is a great ministry, we're the great voice of God, and if you don't send in your money, this won't continue. Don't be too moved by it. Perhaps they've taken themselves a little too seriously. Yes, God is using them. Oh, we thank God for them. God will use anybody who opens their heart up to be used by him. Jeremiah 9.23, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands that he knows me. The mark of greatness is not your spectacular gifts. It's the love that you show to people. I want to close with something I found by Joseph Bailey, a poem. King Jesus, why did you choose a lowly ass to carry you, to ride in your parade? Had you no friend who owned a horse, a royal mount with spirit fit for a king to ride? Why choose an ass, small and unassuming, beast of burden, trained to plow, not to carry kings? King Jesus, why did you choose me, a lowly, unimportant person, to bear you in my world today? I am poor and unimportant, trained to work, not to carry kings, let alone the king of kings, and yet you've chosen me to carry you in triumph in this world's parade. King Jesus, keep me small, that all may see how great you are. Keep me humble, so that all may say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, not what a great ass he rides. Instead of looking at the donkey who carried Jesus, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. Thank God for how he's using people here, around the world. So many of you, God is touching so many people through your lives. I'm just privileged to be a part of it, to be a part of your lives. You're an active church. You're active in this community. You get the gospel out all over this community where you work, in schools, all over. I know that because I hear from people all the time. I have a friend who goes, you're, you're always telling me about Jesus. and not that wonderful? God's using you. But stay small. Stay humble so that God can continue to use you. The minute you think you're something special, watch out. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you choose the foolish, the weak, to confound the things that are mighty, that are strong, that are powerful. And you said that's because you want no flesh to glory in your presence. None of us can take the credit. All of the gifts that you have given us are from you. And let our message always be Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. Not us or our ministry. We don't even have one. It's your ministry that you have lent to us to be a steward and a representative of. Lord, I pray that we would always stay in a position of humility so that you can continue to use us. Thank you, Father, for allowing us to gather tonight. Thank you, Lord, for your lesson of love in sending an angel to stop the foolishness of the prophet and having a donkey see. Lord, I can't help but think that tonight you're reaching out to people. You've sent an alarm in their life, a message or a messenger to stop them from their folly to stop them dead in their tracks. You've gotten their attention. Lord, help them not to follow after Balak or the wages of unrighteousness, but to truly submit themselves to you and to your word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.